Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. So my guest today is a gentleman, Matt Kelman, who is a journalist. He's also a trained artist. He used to be a picture framer in all places, Christchurch, Wellington and Vancouver. There's a story in itself. He's a father, he's a husband, he's a best-selling author now of a book called The Longest Day. Uh, he worked at the Dominion Post and was once uh, nominated for a few Qantas Media Awards as well, if I'm, if I'm correct. He's a blogger, a freelance writer and a photographer and he lives with his wife and his daughters currently in Christchurch. Uh, he also is a depression sufferer and suffers from anxiety and decided one of the ways to get rid of that was to tackle the 243 kilometres of challenge known as the coast to coast. So, Matt, welcome to the Cappuccino. Well, thanks, Brian. Um, bloody hell, it sounds like I'm a busy guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. All that. Yeah, you are. <laughs> to be fair, you are. Hey, now what we do is we do because it's a police uh, podcast. What we do is I do a pop quiz dedicated to what I think is the greatest cop movie of all time, which is Speed. So, here's your pop quiz hot shot. All right. Number one, who right. in, who inspires you the most now? Probably, probably in all honesty, um, just the, the people around me, the people that I'm training with, my family, but my contemporaries. So, like in the past, I looked up to people like Steve Gurney, and I still do, you know, I still admire those people, but I think it's really just the everyday heroes that, that go through the ups and downs and the struggles and um, carry on and with good attitudes that inspire me the most. Uh, number two is. What else is on your bucket list? Because let's be honest, uh, for some people, the coast to coast is sort of number one in their bucket list. And then after that, uh, two to ten are a bit sort of pale in comparison. So what have you got left on yours that we should know about? Yeah, so, um, yeah, what do you do when you tick off a major bucket list? I have to do, you have to fill, fill your bucket up again. So I think um, I'd love to write my second book, really, and that, that's something that I'm, I'm looking ahead to. I've always got to have the next challenge. A um, good mate of mine, Kelly Barber, always told me to have the next thing lined up. And there's other races, um, but really just to continue to, to soak up life and um, get out there and get stuck in the stuff. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, here's the $64 million question for you. Who plays Matt Kelman in the Longest Day movie? I've <laughs> uh, had question from a few mates. Um, <laughs> someone suggested Tom Cruise, and I... Understand that let as well. Just, let me just let me just say it's probably um, not a Dan's um, Mrs. D's going without um, and her follow up. Um, Mrs. D's going with him. Um, a couple of fantastic books um, for people um, struggling with life stuff with alcohol. Yeah. Um, and I recommend them to anyone. Yeah, not wrong. Uh, your 
social media guilty pleasure pleasure because I know that you are pretty active on social media. What's the one thing that I social mean? Media. Yeah, what's the what's the one thing you sort of every day you've got to have a look at? Oh my god. Um, <laughs> well, okay, I, I am a bit of an Instagram junkie, so like, um, I really love seeing really funny videos. There was one where someone posted some self isolation the other day. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Yeah. Um, he had a stop with an eye on it, and he was um, he was stopping up all the traffic down below on the street as he came past. It's like a little Pac-Man thing he set up just with his hand and the stop puppet, and I thought that was really clever. Yeah. And there was also a video um, of um, the mayor of Texas or some town in, little town in Texas, and the deputy mayor was holding, holding court in the chamber, and he'd gone off to the corners and left his microphone off, and um, there was some very, very um, pyrotechnic sound waves going on, um, much to the amusement of everyone in the chamber, and then when he got back, it just broke up, and that was probably made my whole uh, week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not wrong, not wrong. Hey, uh, dinner for five, last question. Dinner for five, who are the other four people there? This is again. So dinner for five, who are the other four dinner people for at your at your dinner table? Not your family members, because we'll assume that they're a natural to be there. Okay. All right, well, I think Jacinda's got to be there. She's just a woman at the moment. She continues to step up when things get tough. Yep. She pops a lot of flack as, as politicians tend to, but... I just think she's bloody fantastic the way yep. she leads and every other country in the world is, is jealous of our Prime Minister so that's got to be something we should be proud of yep. um, John Keelan um, I think you know John did break the mould um, in terms of um, men um, people that you know he had a bloody marvellous looking life um, but he was struggling deep down and he he prompted people to start talking, um, and I really admired that um, when he pulled out his book, um, you know, more than a decade ago now. Yep. Um, Richie McCaw is coming. Um, <laughs> yeah, naturally, yeah. Because I would, I would like to sort of, you know, chat with Richie about, about you know, his inner, his inner world and, you know, the what, what makes him tick. Because, yep. I mean, I've read his books, and um, he's very much a process-driven person, um, and I, I just admire the fact that he's, um, he seems to be a good man. Um, you know, trouble never follows Richie because he's never in trouble. So he's he's a good man living a good good life with yep. a good attitude. Um, how many am I up to? I need one more, don't I? Yeah, you uh, do. Yeah. Oh my God. So um, far, so far, it's a good. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting dinner table because you've got a blues player, a crusader, and the prime minister around the table. David Gilmore, yeah, magic. Yep, there's nothing wrong with that either. All right, so you're a successful journalist at the Dominion Post. Uh, but by your own admission, you dealt with most of your problems like a lot of Kiwi males do with booze. How bad was it for you on just sort of a, any given day? Were you sort of uh, sneaking the odd drink on the side or when you had your company functions, were you the, as we call them, the, the larrikin or sort of the, the guy in the corner that was sort of the life and soul of the party, but you're actually hiding other things? What, how bad was it for you? I think, you know, I've always, always um, used alcohol to being comfortable in social situations. I'm, I'm naturally, I was a very, very shy child. Yeah. Very shy, um, cripplingly shy to the point where I found it very difficult to be myself around others. And so I used alcohol to bring out that slightly more extroverted side of myself um, to feel comfortable. So, you know, I'd get kind of six beers in and I'd, you know, just finally feel kind of comfortable in my own skin. And, and, you know, kind of disappear a little bit. I sort of used to rather than stand out and you know most people um, in my life my friends and my wife even um, when I gave up alcohol they, they 
they were very surprised um, because they didn't think I, I appeared to have a problem. And I think a lot of this stuff is very internal. You tend to hide your problems. And so I, I could I could be pretty boozed and still keep functioning and standing. Um, and I often get home before things really fell apart. And I think the question isn't really the, the amount you're drinking or, or, or whatever. It's more about how it's making you feel inside. So yeah. Towards the end, I was um, drinking... My, my drinking became pretty solitary and it was more like the, the stay-at-home dad type drinking so where, and mum type drinking where you drink mason dinner and you open a bottle of wine or, or a river of cider. But I was, you know, finishing a river of cider, mason dinner, and then opening one when my wife got home and sneezed if it was the first one. So I was starting to hide things, yeah. um, which didn't make me feel good. And then you kick on and have a wine with dinner and then you finish the bottle after dinner. And then some nights I'd stay up, my wife would go to bed and I'd, you know, we'd open, I'd open another one and drink half of that or more. And, and that could continue for kind of weeks before I pick it back and think, you know, I was just constantly rechecking myself, saying, God, I, I've, I've gone too far and I need to kind of control this. Um, and by the time I decided to give up alcohol, I was, it was making me really miserable. Yeah. Um, I was starting to feel re- a real sense of shame about it. I knew something was wrong. Um, I didn't know how deep the, the, my personal problems, my depression um, that eventually came to the fore after I gave up alcohol was, but... It just seemed to be the most obvious thing that I could that I could change. So I thought, you know, the first tap off the rank was booze. Um, something I could practically do to um, to fix something, you know. And yeah. that was always my way to try and fix what was broken. Yeah. And then um, after that, I could no longer really ignore um, the real problems that I had, which was which was really based on you know some very very deep self esteem issues and. And my kind of dissatisfaction with the direction I was taking, the things I felt I should be doing, the dreams I, I wanted to chase were more than chasing. And that was really yeah. the crux of the problem. Yeah, and then on 12.50pm on the 29th of April at 2017, you're propped up against your bed here, and last week's podcast guest was a lady called Gwendolyn Smith who's written the book of Overthinking. Mm. And she very yeah. often talks about sleep disorders and interrupted sleep and everything else so it was almost like hey look at that there's the key indicator you have a vision of your own body limp and hanging looking back on it what do you think that vision was about now in hindsight well even then it wasn't about um it wasn't about me being me wanting to end my life no i think it was a real wake-up call for me and, and that's and it really scared me away from my problems that, that I could no longer ignore them, that I could no longer sit paralyzed on my bed and, and suffer what was happening and wonder what the hell was really wrong. I really had to, had to change, I had to do something about it. And so um, for me, um, it prompted action. And so it was really that, that was the moment I really reached out properly for help. Yeah. Um, I'd already had a counselor for some panic attacks I'd been having, having the year before. Um, and um, so I had that avenue, so I, I texted or emailed her, you know, immediately saying I really need to see you. That's important. And I called out for my wife, um, and she she was upstairs. And, and you know, luckily I wasn't alone. I wasn't, you know, physically alone. I yeah. I, I reached out and just said, you know, and it all kind of fell apart. I could no longer sort of keep this veil up of, of mucking through and, and appearing to be okay. Um, so for me, um, I've never. I don't know if it's like Santa Claus um, with his life. I've never believed in, in taking my own life and, and suicide. I kind of, it's never been something that, that I ever thought um, would be something I would I would think about, but it was right in front of my face. I couldn't deny it. Um, 
and yeah, it, it was probably um, it was a real crossroads in my life, and, and happily it tipped my life into that kind of eventually that period of um, recovery, yeah, and then um, changing the way I did things to if, make my life um, more fulfilled. If I said to you, Matt, what does depression look like for Matt Kelman? What could, what would you say? Well, in the past, before I before I was diagnosed, um, you know, I struggled with with mental health problems in hindsight for most of my um, adult life and um, and my teens, you know, like off and on periods of ups and downs. But I'd always compare myself to the worst cases I've seen and others have heard about, thinking I don't really have a problem. Yeah. Um, I don't have what that looks like, so I must be okay. And that's a comparison thing with alcohol and with depression is something that a lot of people do. And like you, you deny that you you've got a problem, so you let it kind of slide. And I just let things slip along, like the patches dripping and dripping and dripping, yeah. and eventually the bath filled over. So um, depression to me, I, you know, in the past I thought it was a deep sadness um, when I hadn't experienced it really. I, I thought it was a deep sadness, but it's got nothing to do with sadness. For me, it was a total absence of feeling an absence of emotion, and these emotions that, you know, I, at that point I, I felt absolutely nothing, numb to everything, um, when I, after I was diagnosed and in those early days when I was needing to rebuild, um, and that was the scariest thing, that I, I just didn't, I didn't have any hope that that would ever change, yeah. and I think um, that was pretty confronting, um, and I ached to have that even, you know, those feelings of sadness and, and when you're crying, you're feeling that lump in the throat and you're feeling absolutely miserable. You know, I longed to have that back, you know, yeah. at the point where I'd lost it. Um, and slowly these things have come back. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. And I feel for people out there that are feeling that hopelessness, that desperation. Yeah. It, it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't felt that. Yeah. Um, but it, it really cuts very, very deep. Yeah. What do you think so many Kiwi blokes have a problem talking about their mental health? Um, in the book, you refer to you going to see your counsellor and you were trembling and you were afraid and you, you, um, you, know, you were crying and everything else. Do you think it's just that stereotypical thing of, come on, mate, toughen up, harden up, you know, you need to be a bit harder, suck it up, son, um, that type of stuff? Or do you really think mm -hmm. that it's just the fact that we aren't maybe as open as we, we should, really should be with ourselves? I think I think we're hardwired um, to see vulnerability as weakness. Yeah. Um, and you know, John Peel was told by and by and all that famously, they're tough enough and hard enough, mate. Just get on with it. Yeah. And and it's just the opposite thing of what you should do. You, you really need to, um, you really need to start talking about these things and to, um, you know, being vulnerable and being open about what's going on inside is an actual is a true strength. And it's something that you can draw great strength by from eventually because it's, it's the thing that will help you um, recover. Like you've got to talk and keep talking and, and keep reaching out. Um, people are there to help, but you know if you if you just sort of go on um, keeping it inside and bottling it up because because you're worried about how people will view you, um, then that kind of um, I mean the thing is most most people are dealing with something in their lives. You know, life's not going to be easy for everyone all the time. We we walk around thinking everyone's got it sweeter than us, and and that our problems. If we oh God, if I show if I tell someone about my problems, they'll just they won't understand. They'll laugh at me. They won't get it. It's the opposite. It, it, it gives other people permission to to um, open up about what's going on for them, and then you find out that everyone's dealing with something. So um, yeah, it's something that I I guess. Um, I guess it goes back a long way in New Zealand. We, we came over in um, the colonial, you know, the colonial yeah. era, people coming over and having to forge a new life. 
settings have been pretty tough um, going out playing rugby. I mean, you're not going to be talking about your feelings as well as I'm saying, but, no. but here's the thing. Like, you've got opportunities to talk about it and visit them afterwards or in quiet moments with your friends or, or even openly. Um, the opportunities are always there. And um, once you do it without any fear or hesitation or practice, you know, being open about these things, if you've got a problem, you know, talk about it with someone. You're not burdening them. You're giving them permission to support you. People want to help, you know, it makes people feel good to help and to support you. Yeah, and so I... So you just give them that permission. In the book, you use the, the the term depression whisperer. I'm quite open with my feelings and I'm quite very often will talk to my mates about how I'm feeling and I do a little bit of media work as well, um, talking about, mm. you know, being resilient and being um, strong enough to be vulnerable and everything else. It's almost like, uh, this is the feeling I get and you can let me know if this is true for you, it's almost like you've opened a Pandora's box and said to people, you know what, it's okay for you to tell me how you're feeling. And in the book, you you almost sort of, it's almost like this picture of a secret society with people coming up to you and sort of saying, actually, you know what, Matt, I've got a few issues going on here as well. Um, is that what you found when you sort of were vulnerable and open and actually said to people, yeah, actually, you know what, I'm depressed? Well, yeah, so, so in the very early days after my diagnosis, my counsellor um, told me to, to be um, what she told me, her advice was um, turn out to your depression rather than folding into it. So, yeah. so that meant, you know, to me it was connecting with others, helping others, looking out for people, and also being open about it. Yeah. So, like, there's the whole thing. Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to tell someone because you're burdened and then or it'll be awkward and, and all that. Yeah, there's the risk that it'll be awkward. But I found it was only awkward when I was awkward about it. Yeah. So. And if it's awkward with someone, it doesn't matter. You know, you move on and, and then you get opportunities all the time to talk about this stuff. And it doesn't take very much. I mean, I've talked to strangers. Um, all the time I, I talk to strangers and I say, they ask, oh, what are you doing? I say, oh, well, I'm writing a book. And what's your book about? About depression. And so I'm giving you that in. And then they say, oh, right. Well, I've, I've known someone. You know, I, I can't remember very many people. You know, we're up to hundreds now or even more of people that have said, I know someone. I've struggled with it. My wife, my son. Um, my friend, my colleague, so it touches everybody, so you find out that we're all in the same boat, and then we can all support each other, so um, what I found is that by being open, practicing, you know, um, finding a way to, to weave it into a conversation, um, get you past that, that surface talk, the surface talk that I always find so difficult, um, because it's sort of quite vacuous, and it's about the weather or whatever, but you know, you really want to talk to I can go and talk to a perfect stranger and within 10 seconds I can be talking about some deep life stuff. Yeah. And then you've made an actual real connection with someone. And it, it um, takes a little bit of practice, but it's actually pretty easy. And, and it's really just about being concerned about others, listening to them, and, um, and you know, being open. It, it really, nothing ever really bad has ever happened to me from being open about this stuff. No, and, and it's... it's a, and I think... It's a lot more helpful than talking about the weather, which is what most Kiwis talk about, isn't it? Well, that's right, and it's sort of, um, I think that, that could make a massive difference to people if, if the bridge between um, reaching out and finding out that people are willing to help. You know, I, I, talk, I heard Mike King speak at Eastgate Mall um, last year or the year before, and, and he, said, he asked the crowd, like, how many among you would, would ask for help for your problems to be open about them? And hardly anyone put their hand up, and then he, he asked how many people would help a perfect stranger if they were sitting on a park bench and asking for help. Um, and everyone put their hand up. Yeah. So it's that bridge where it's a chasm between, you know, the disconnect between um, being open and asking for help 
and then the people we are are willing to help people. We're, I, I don't know many people who run my friend group that wouldn't want to help someone else. Yeah. And it's the same thing. I mean, I've drawn great support and strength through my friends and, and just just people. I have people come up to me since the book's been out, um, people that I know, saying, I've, I've struggled with this stuff and I didn't know you did. And so it's um it's not a bad thing. I think it's a way often seen as a bad thing and, and bad things will happen. It'll hurt your career. It'll hurt the way people view you, but it doesn't. No, definitely right. And I mean, look, let's be honest. Uh, like John Kirwan says in his book, uh, depression's a lot closer than we think it is. It doesn't discriminate. One in four Kiwis will ex- uh, experience depression. The question I'm going to ask you, though, is uh, just in your personal opinion, why do you think New Zealand males in particular have such an appalling and shocking suicide rate? Do you think it's because as a, a lack of resources? Do you think they just get themselves into a U-turn where they go, you know what, nobody's going to be able to help me here? What, what what do you think is the answer? I th- yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm never going to claim to be an expert on this stuff. No. Know, I've become an expert on my own depression and well-being. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to people who, who went at the brink of suicide, you know, people that have opened up to me about what, what, what was going on for them, and something stopped them in the end, and they, they didn't go through with it, but they were on the verge of it. It was only just, they didn't really want to do it. No. But they were out of ideas, they were in a desperate place. And it was that whole thing of not feeling like they could reach out, that that their life had kind of tipped over and things were going wrong for them. It was situational. Um, or, you know, they just didn't have any hope that it would change. Um, and the people that have told me, you know, about this, um, they've all managed to get through this, you know, it's hard. And they're, they're bloody happy they didn't do it because um, all these things pass. And I... I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't know if it's that stiff upper lip, upper lip um, yeah. the toughness thing, that I can't show weakness. Um, they think that it's the only option. I mean, one, you know, I think our minds can be very rigid. So yeah. if you start thinking a certain way, you think that that's the only way to think about it. Or, or if you start thinking my depression will never lift, then that becomes a powerful thought. But it's about kind of like being mindful about the fact that things will pass, that you... That, Sitting with difficult emotions doesn't necessarily have to be a very difficult thing if you can kind of see that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So, oh, no, I don't know the answer, and I, and I don't. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people researching this stuff that are, have a lot um, more in tune with it than I am. Yeah. Um, but I, but having been there, I can understand why people do this. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just, I just hope that... Um, that we all get better at recognising when people are struggling and, and reaching out. You know, it doesn't take very much to, to snap people out of this mind process. Um, the two people that have talked to me about it, it was only just something on the very end that just snapped them out of it. Some, yeah. Someone told me that, you know, they were ready to do it and then um, someone they knew came past and and waved at them. And it was, could be something as simple as that. Yeah, and lots of people that I've spoken to as a police officer who've been in that situation have said exactly the same thing. It's been something really, really simple that's made them stop. And then they've realised and gone, oh, my God, you know, um, thank goodness I didn't because I've got so much to live Mm. for. Um, You had your last drink on the 17th of June, 2016, at the ripe old age of 39. Do you miss it or not? I don't miss it at all. Like, I um, just with the alcohol thing, it, you know, the first year can be a real up and down. A, a roller coaster is actually in that first year before the year was out. Yeah. The depression starts and my crash happened. And, um, 
and I was just grateful that I that I wasn't drinking at the time because it, it's a depressant. It just adds fuel to the fire of your depression. So, um, no, I don't miss it. I and after I think I got to my my one year and I renegotiated the contract with myself and I was like, right, am I going to go back to it or am I going to keep going? And I decided to keep going. I mean, eventually it just became more and more important to me. My sobriety was something that I wasn't prepared to give up because I had so much skin in the game. And then after two years, I really, I really stopped even thinking about it. There was no, I have no cravings. I just have a clear head and I know that it's, it's my life's much better without it. And I think when I was um, agonising over whether I'd give it up or not, I knew something was wrong that, that, that it was making me miserable. But I was, I was scared that... Um, I was scared that I was sacrificing too much, that my life would be boring without it, that I wouldn't have that thing that, you know, why shouldn't I be able to enjoy a drink? But yeah. now I, um, I'm grateful, and, and I never imagined life could be actually better without alcohol. And I'm not someone that goes around beating people on the head and saying, this is easy to give up because life's better. I, I just I just do what I do. Yeah. But I know a lot of people who have given up um, based on the fact that you know, my life has just improved so much and, and I've been pretty open about that. Yeah. Now, a lot of Dan was the first person I heard talking in, in this sort of way, you know, when I went and interviewed her for a story I did first time I met her. And she was sort of like a like a TV evangelist um, mm. from America and she was talking about the stuff like with such enthusiasm and just like, man, it's just so much better. My life is so much better. And I thought, wow, like I, that changed my whole mindset. Yeah. And that really prompted me to actually just take that step and give it up because I'd never had any perspective on it. I'd, I'd always had alcohol in my life, and um, you can't really make a clear decision on it if you, if you if you don't have that break and that clear perspective on whether it's helpful or not. I'm like, you know, yeah. But it is scary, and I get that. Yeah. But I just you know encourage the people that are questioning it, um, just just give it a go. You know, you might step back a few times, but if you really if you really want to do it, um, it'll happen. Yeah, and it's a bit of a vicious circle, like you said, when you're at the Dominion Post, you saw the negative aspects of um, excess drink consumption. Uh, yeah. And, right. yeah, you know, in the situation, you're championed in New Zealand culture for holding your drink in and then actually bringing your drink back up because you're a sort of Jack the Lad um, at the same <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think uh, a lot of New Zealanders, and I think this personally myself, do you think a lot of New Zealanders are actually trying to well they're hiding the fact from themselves that they might actually be closet alcoholics i mean we all know that person that's got to have sort of two or three glasses of wine every night and if they don't have it they, they're not having mm. a very good day yeah i think i think it's the whole thing like you know i, I prefer the term problem drink as alcoholic i mean alcoholic carries such a stigma and, yeah. and to me that suggests the person who's yeah. referring to the spectrum who who physically needs needs it to function and and you know, I might I might be bringing my own biases in there, but um, if if booze is becoming a problem for you, then it's a problem. And then so I've always sort of thought of myself as a problem drinker because eventually, you know, I had a lot of fun drinking, and I thought it was great, and I enjoyed the time with my friends. And yeah. um, but it has a dark side, and, and eventually that just became more and more pronounced. And and yeah, you're right. Like covering covering alcohol stuff at the time, where like I go and do the court list, and I sit in court all morning and. Yeah. And ninety five percent of the, the court list is, is um and you'd know this being a police officer, booze and drugs and, and you think without the booze and the drugs, um, the courts would be pretty um they wouldn't be a very busy place, you might not have a job and it's um it's it's pretty crazy out there. Like there's a lot of drinking goes on and and I think, you know, I think we are question I think people are generally questioning drinking more than they than they used to. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's just a personal thing. I mean, if it's a problem for you then 
then um, you can. It is actually easier than you think to swim against the tide. Mm. People people aren't accepting you to drink. Really, I've never had anyone say, "Come on, man, you need to have a boat and drink." And yeah. why are you drinking? I've never had it. Um, if you're strong in your decision and you just say, "Well, no, nah, I don't need it," or you don't even say anything, but you start to realise that not everyone drinks like that. Yeah, and it is actually okay not to. Yeah, and. Um, reading your book after you sort of addressed that and you you hit rock bottom, you go and see your counsellor and you go and see everybody else and <clears throat> I thought, oh, here we go, this is going to be, and like I said to you before we started, I couldn't get through John Cohen's book the first time it took me about two or three goes because it's about something mm. I've never experienced and I actually found the book, I know this is sort of an oxymoron, a bit, bit depressing, um, but the <laughs> thing I found... Yeah, the thing I found in your book was um, it wasn't all doom and gloom. There were some moments where you actually, to, for want of better words, you actually took the piss out of yourself and you knew that you were sort of, it was kind of, uh, shall we say, funny in its own sort of way. Um, the incident where you are at the supermarket and the code for the couscous goes across the counter and you need to punch in the code and you're just standing at it looking blankly and you're sort of like, yeah, no, hang on, yeah. And you actually go home and you write in your blog, I wish I was a bit sharper than I used to be, and hopefully that'll come back. Um, there were obviously lots yeah. of moments uh, in, in, in that moment of your life that you now look back on and think they were kind of funny. I know that you said in the book that you found the couscous incident kind of funny at the time. Are there lots of things now that you look back on and just go, well, that was kind of funny, and I'm thank, thank God I've moved on? Well, listen, I think... Um I think my family enjoy me a lot more when my sense of humour is on point, and I, I've, I've always enjoyed to have a laugh. And I think taking the piss out of yourself is, is just one of the greatest laughs you can have because, yeah, um, I don't know, everyone else seems to enjoy it, and um, <laughs> and uh, you know we take ourselves pretty bloody seriously. And I've beaten myself up a lot in my life, and that's been come that's been the source of a lot of my problems that I've been so hard on myself. And and you know when you're hard on yourself on in that way, it makes you a bit harder on others. So it's sort of, yeah, it's just one of those things that if you can just learn to give yourself a bloody break and not expect too much. Like, I had to go, when I was training for the Coast to Coast, I had to learn how to kayak, and, yeah. and I had some terrible struggles in the boat, and if, it was all, if I took it so seriously, then, then I probably wouldn't have continued with it. I probably would have thought, well, bugger this, this is too hard. I mean, I like doing things that I know I can do, and that, that is the guaranteed outcome, but so much of training for Coast to Coast had a very uncertain outcome, and the race itself used it doesn't matter how much you train or whatever, things can happen on the day. There's yeah. no certain outcome in, in travelling from one side of the country to the other. So, um, yeah, I think the couscous thing was like my brain just was not functioning very well. My, I was just starting my meds and the supermarket, for me, there was a lot of decisions to be made in the supermarket and yeah. it's just one of those triggering places that, that it's still, I still get triggered in the supermarket some days when I'm not feeling on top of things. And I just, I'm just kind of used to it now and standing there like I can, you know, just totally frozen and then the person come in and help me punch the code in. And, and I think, you know, it's not, it wasn't that difficult, but I just had to sort of laugh at myself and say, wow, you know. And the very first day after um, my diagnosis, I tried to make my coffee and just kind of burst into tears because I just felt so hopeless. I just couldn't, my brain just wasn't working. And um, so it had sort of swings and roundabouts between sort of like, Eventually, I started like being able to laugh at some of that stuff, and and that was a really good place to be because you know at least you kind of um, you started to get some of those feelings and emotions back, and it was really wonderful. And, and there were so many amazing moments um, training for this great race um, that got me out of my own head and yep. just in 
moment in yep. the middle of the big most beautiful place we've seen. Now speaking of taking the life, speaking of taking the piss, and you you came up with that term, not me. Uh, your mates Chris <laughs> and Cam compete and take part in the coast to coast, and the seeds planted that you're going to do a coast to coast. Before you started your coast to coast training, the furthest you'd ever run was what? Um, I had done about thirty something, thirty three k's one one time when I was I was trying to fight. So I'm kind of an intense person, so I was trying to follow after Lydia's hundred um, mile a week um, program. So you go from sedentary office worker to doing a hundred hundred miles a week in a in a program of about six weeks or something, and so you build up slowly. And by the end of it, um, I I think I got sort of um, glandular fever, and I was. I got to the end of the 33k run and I was just about heaving my lungs out. I was not in a good way and that was about when I stopped doing the Lydia thing and decided um, that I needed to rest. Yeah. Um, that was, yeah. So that was the longest I'd ever run. I'd never done a full marathon. I'd done a lot of half marathons. Yeah. Um, and running was my thing after I gave up rugby um, and I, I really just did running. I just loved it and trail running and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And the further, I hadn't done anything. No, the furthest you'd kayaked was, the furthest you'd kayaked was what? Before coast, yep. Um, oh, I think I'd paddled a canoe when I was about ten down the Avon for about five minutes before falling out with my dad. Yeah. Um, I had never kayaked before, really. I'd, I'd paddled the odd canoe and stuff throughout my life, so I'd never kayaked. Kayak was kayaking was something I had to learn how to do. Yeah. Um, same as road bike. I'd yep. never ridden a road bike. No, exactly. And that was one of the big lessons that I read when I read this book. Not only were your mates helping you out with your mental health, and you know you knew that there were lots of people, but with all sports, um, particularly multi-sports, though, uh, mm. there were so many people that were willing to help you from the from I think it's Scotty in the bike store to Steve Gurney to uh, you know mm. Kelly to all those guys, all giving you advice and sort of saying you'll do this, Matt, no problems at all. Um, were you surprised at how open people were with helping you? With a coast to coast, because it's a—I mean, it's a solo event. It's a solo sport. Was that a surprise for you? It was a little bit surprise. I mean, yeah, in some way it was surprising looking back on it. At the time, I was just reaching out, and people were reaching back. So, like, I reached out to Kelly Barber, who who'd written his own book called Conquering the Coast to Coast, a really wonderful read of a guy who kind of—he changed his life by doing this race. He, he went from being kind of sedentary smoker on the couch, not really chasing life, and then he got into Coast to Coast. He, he's done 17 Coast to Coast in a row, I believe. I think his last one, he just did it this year, the 17th. And he he just loves it, and, he, and he's so passionate about it. And he got a lot of help as well. So, like, in his book, he talks about reaching out to, to Jackson's, and he reached out to a really awesome kayaker who, who took him under his wing and gave him a boat and taught him how to paddle. And, and it, it is something that the community and coast is a very special thing. You, you may not get it in some of the other sports where everyone's out to bloody win. And um, even the people that win this race, um, Sam Clark's just wonderful. Like he, he doesn't paddle past anyone without saying good day to them on the river. Um, even on race day when he's got to do your own breathing down his mittens, he stops and he chats um, to, um, um, to Joe Kane on the river who's struggling, having a bad day, and he lifts her up and gives her some encouragement. Yeah. So this race is amazing. Like you, you just you meet lifelong friends out on the course. You meet them in training, um, and it's it is one of those things where you really respect each other because you know what it takes to do the race. It, it takes a lot of effort and commitment, but eventually you're just going out and having adventures with your mates um, in training. And um, it's not it didn't feel like training to me. Like the first year, yeah, there was a lot of training I did by myself. But eventually, the second year, um, I'm training basically. All, all, all my training was was others and. 
thin it's just like you're just having a good time and yeah. it's um it is a great community yeah i'm not, I'm not going to go too much into your training and everything else because i want people to go out and buy the book because uh, I, to me, that was because <laughs> yeah, no, to, to me that was one of the the coolest parts of the book was the fact that you were keeping your training diaries, you were seeing people that were giving you a hand and everything else. And uh, look, let's be honest, uh, when I read the kayaking bit, I was like, "Shit, man, you should just give this up." I think I don't think this is going to go well for you, but <laughs> you persevered, so good on you. Um, the getting towards the end of the book, and I'm not even going to tell people how it ends either, but. For the last year, you thought that the book was dependent on the fairy tale ending, but you realise it's better this way. It's about the struggle and it's about carrying on despite life setbacks. Do you still feel that way now or not? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, um, what I what I decided after my diagnosis, well, I had to change some fundamental things about how I went about about challenges and how I went about my life. So. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the question is, is you stuck in the past and stuff you regret and stuff you haven't done and stuff that hasn't gone well for you. Yeah. You're also worried about the future. Um, being in the moment is a really good place to be. It's really, it's a cliche, but it's so true. Yeah. Um, and training for the race really got me into the moment, and, and it was just a practicing tool. So I had to practice over and over again, being in the moment. Like you're on, you're on the bike going down even past the 70k, and now holding on for dear life, this whole smile up. Yeah. And in that moment, you're not, you can't be thinking about your problems. You, you've got to be thinking about the potholes and getting down the road. And yeah, the more you can get out there and do that, I think that's how my life slowly changed um, to the point now where I just really soak up life and I just go out and do the things I want to do. And I don't worry about what I'm not doing. I just, I just get stuck in. Yeah. And failure, failure um, has been redefined for me. Yeah. There is no failure. I mean, I. I just sort of think, you know, people put a lot of pressure on themselves. I, I've got friends who finished the race, but something went wrong. Um, they might have got a puncture or, or something happened that, that that affected their time and they just beat themselves up afterwards and, and they just were left kind of bereft. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like, thinking, you know. A little bit like Kelly says, isn't it? Getting to the start line is the big thing and everything else is a bonus after that. Absolutely. It's a, it, you know, it's not, nothing is guaranteed in life and, and um, if, if everything is, is loaded into the outcome, um, then what are you left with? So, so I think in that way, that I have that mindset of um, enjoying the journey, meeting new people, um, just going out and just soaking it up. Because if, if you don't make it on race day for whatever reason, that, that's out of your control. Yeah. Um, you've got to have that. You've got to have something left. And, and yeah, I mean, it's just the most fulfilling thing I've ever done, and it's taught me a lot about life, and, yep. and, and it's carried through to all other aspects of my life as well. And I suspect that in the second book, there'll be a little bit of a chapter about a man called James Holf coming into your life in a strange <laughs> way. Do you, th- do you think well, it was... Enough, mate. Was that a case of yeah, everything like coming that. full circle for you, Matt? Yeah, I think, I think without... Um, so, just to fill people in slightly, I mean, um, in my race this year, Towards the end of the race, the last 20 k's, I was I had the opportunity to help a guy called James Holt out. Um, he was hitting the wall and struggling really badly in the last ride. We were the last two out there, and um, there was time, and it was an opportunity to you know we rode the last 20 together, and it just lifted that mental burden for him to have have someone to chat to, and it was a wonderful thing for me too because it's nice to be able to help people and to have that opportunity to do that. And I think the old Matt would have been. Um, Probably in his own little world of hurt, punched over the handlebars and um, clinging on for dear life to the finish line. But but having made those transformations and that, and looking outward, 
and having that mental, you know, that mental approach to life um, allowed me to help James. And so um, it's something that, that we'll have forever, you know, finishing finishing together and um, it's something that was such a special moment for yeah. both of us and we'll, we'll share a lifelong friendship about it. And so, yeah, it's been, been pretty amazing, really. Um, the whole journey, and then, and that was part of part of your journey. When I read the book, and I, then I read that article about what had actually happened, I thought, you know what, well, uh, it's a mark of your uh, the mark of the man that you are. The fact that you were so humble about the fact that you haven't mentioned the the listeners that you told James to run him before you did across the finish line. So, a maximum respect for that. Um, if I'd said to you in April 2017, you know what, Matt, you're going to win the endurance trophy for the coast to coast, but not only will you win that trophy you are also going to help somebody actually finish the coast to coast race what would you what do you think the old Matt would have said to me I would have probably said that was pretty unlikely considering um, I never thought the race was for someone like me like I, I never had that self-belief um, but what I've since found out is that anyone can do this race um, anyone can sort of do anything they put their mind to um, and it's really just up to the person to, to to choose to do something and just take that first step along the way yeah. and keep stepping until they get there. So, you know, it's not one, it's not 240 kilometres across the country, it's a million steps in training and then it's just carrying on yeah. until you get there and it's, um, yeah. it's achievable. It's that age-old adage, isn't it? One, one step forward at a time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're not going to get there if you stand yourself. No, 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 exactly right. So if somebody is asking for advice, if you are depressed or they're suffering from anxiety, where do you think is the best place for them to start? I think, you know, the people closest to you, um, they want the best for you, you know. They, you know, every, everyone, you know, you see the disclaimers, there's, there's, there's the list of um, services to, to approach, um, there's the medical professionals, the GPs, um, they're all wonderful places to, to go to, to reach out to. If you're alone and, and you need to ring someone, there's all these numbers that, that can help you um, in the crisis. Um, but, you know, for me, I, I, I reached out to the people closest to my counsellor and my wife. Well, my wife was um, the first one on hand to, to wrap her arms around me. And, um, you know, and it can be a hard thing to do. But, like, I, I like to think that the conversation can shift to people, you know, talking about the stuff more and not leaning and get to the point where they're, where they're about to fall off the cliff because in that case, you know, you're picking up pieces um, at the bottom of the cliff and it's a much um, steeper climb out. So if we can sort of get a bit better about knowing ourselves and not ignoring these problems and not letting them drift um, and actually getting onto it earlier. I mean, it's that whole thing, isn't it? Like, why would you, why would you call the fire brigade um, before before you see the smoke? So if there's signs of problems, get on to talk about it. People are out there to help. But, um, yeah, I mean, GPs and, and medical and counsellors and the mental health professionals, they're all there to help you, but there's also the people closest to you that can that can um, wrap some support around you and then, and then from there um, key you into something else. So the reaching out is the key thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not just who you reach out to. It's yeah. the reaching out part. And it's like that uh, famous New Zealand organisation called the Police with that ca- that catchphrase prevention first, and it is like you say, it's so much better. And every emergency service worker yeah. I've ever spoken to about mental health always says, you know, if we do the early stuff early, then we don't have to pick up people mm. from the bottom. So yeah, exactly right. So you can't do a coast to coast every day uh, for your uh, mental health, 
So how do you, what does an average day look like for Matt and how do you keep the black dog in the kennel for you? Well, my lifestyle's changed quite a bit. I mean, I was always an active person, but, you know, I've, I've got a few more options with my training now. So I've just, this morning, I had my first big, decent road bike since coast to coast. I've done a bit of mountain biking since. I've got some new things I want to do. It's always having those little goals, yep. goals um, set up and then things to go for. But, um, you know, I just continue to look after myself, eat well, try and sleep well. Um, these things will help help your mental state um, and just keep active. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping fit. I'm not quite as fit as I was when I did the coast, but um, but I'm um, it's a big part of my life, so I just love getting out there and, and going on these little adventures. Um, but, yeah, that, that's a typical day. I've got the kids to look after and get them to school and make their lunches and, <laughs> and pick them up. I've got to go and pick up another one in about 20 minutes. But, um, Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's, that's and the family, you know, yeah. going back to family and... Um, being present with them is, is pretty wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Where do people follow you on social media or get hold of you? I know you've got your own website, so do you want to give us the details, Matt? Yeah, so I just set up a website um, which sort of gives you some information about the book and, and various things, and, and you can see a bit of my training and all that. Um, Matt Kelman, so M A T T C A L M A N dot com uh, is where you find that. You can follow me on Instagram on Kelman Matt. Uh, Matt Kelman Matt yep. and um, yeah I, I, well I'm on Twitter too Matt Kelman on Twitter although I'm not very active I don't really understand Twitter I'm, it's sort of passed me by I think but um, Instagram yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I, I have followed you, by the way, just, just quietly. So I'll, I'll let you know about this podcast. Yeah, no, yeah, good. Thank you, Brian. No worries. Last, and, um, last. Can I, just, can go I on. just say, um, oh, you know, you carry on. No, go on, go, go ahead. We'll be interview. Okay, I was just, I was just going to say, I've just, um, just got a huge amount of admiration for the police and the work they do. You know, you, you guys get a cop a bit of flack from the public sometimes, but um, you guys are on the front line of, um, you know, of mental health. Um, you're pretty amazing. I, I rode, I rode with um, the Wellington guys that go out and do sort of like you know Friday, Saturday nights in town, and I rode along and did an hour on, on alcohol actually. Um, back when I was at the Dom, and and I just saw the social, the social stuff that the police do, the prevention. It's not all about locking bad guys up, it's actually keeping people safe and looking after them, and and just going beyond. You know, it was just it was just a real eye, and I just think you guys are marvellous. Oh, thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And look, while we're patting one another on the back, what you've done with this book for mental health in New Zealand is bloody awesome. And I suspect it will go on to be like John Kewin's book. I think it'll be, because we can't all play rugby. Well, I used to play in the front row, so I'm very, I very often suggest that unless you were wearing one, two or three on your back, you weren't playing the game anyway. But um, I think that... I, I play front row too, Brian, actually. So good I, man, um, good I'm man. I'm not the body type for it, but... Um, yeah, yeah well, everywhere in the, in the scrum and the back line. There you go. Yeah. So you know what exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, not everybody can play rugby. And it, you, you are breaking down that stereotype as well because of the fact that you're doing something that people look on as extraordinary. But like you've said, anybody can do it. You've just got to give yourself the application and the time and everything else. So the last question I'm going to ask you is this, and it's the question I always ask. It's the day of your passing has come and you're lying there in your coffin. But strangely enough, you can hear what people are saying about you. What would you want people to say about Matt Kelman and the and the eulogy to you? Um, oh God, that's a tough one. Yeah, it is. A... I, actually, I haven't thought I haven't thought about this one before, Brian. Um, funnily enough, um, I, I guess I guess I'd like people to, to say that um, that Matt, um, you know, um, helps people, you know, and, and because I think that's the example. Like if everyone was out to help other people. Um, 
the you know the world was well the world is a great place but um you know we can, I too often focus on a lot of the negative stuff but if we look out for each other we can look out for strangers we can look out for our family and our friends treat everyone as if they're your loved ones and um and and things will be car pie yeah. Uh, and on that note, we'll say thank you very much, Matt Kilman, for your time. You're a bloody top bloke. Keep up this amazing that you're doing, mate. And uh, most importantly, give your wife and the kids a big squeeze from us because reading the book, I understand what a huge support they were for you during the time. So good on you, Matt. Hey, thanks very much, Brian. Coppuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.